Good morning, everybody. Um, the last time I preached to you all, it was to a camera back in June. Um, and many people that I see here this morning uh, weren't even a part of our church back then. Uh, and so if I have not met you yet, I apologize for that. Uh, some in the congregation may consider you lucky. Uh, my name is Tim Garber. I am a deacon here at Christ Church Westchester. Uh, you may have seen me or my wife, Catherine, carrying our four-month, almost five-month around in our baby carrier, uh, or chasing our toddler, Hudson, around. Uh, I'm an eighth-grade math teacher at Charles F. Patton Middle School, uh, and I'm also a soccer coach and a track coach at that same school. And as always, it is an honor and a privilege to share God's Word with you all this morning. If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn into it to Isaiah 38. Isaiah 38. If you do not have a Bible that you can call your own, uh, please feel free to grab a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Uh, if you do not own a Bible or have a Bible that you can understand, please feel free to keep that. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word that you, you can study and read on your own time. So please follow along with me as I read from the 38th chapter of Isaiah's prophecy in its entirety. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial 10 steps I wish it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had been sick and had recovered from his sickness. I said, in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. O oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety." What shall I say? For he has spoken to me. 
and he himself has done it. I walked slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O, restore me to health and make me live. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. Now, Isaiah has said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Hezekiah also has said, what is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Please pray with me. Dear God, we thank you that your word is powerful. We thank you that your word endures through the ages. We thank you that it has promises in it uh, that were for King Hezekiah and are for us as well this morning. We thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises. We thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are good. And Father, I do pray that you would uh, share your word with the people this morning, that they would hear what you would have them to hear, and that you would be glorified. And we all lift all these things up in Christ's name. Amen. So, a brief background on the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, as most of you guys know, is a book of prophecy. Uh, So Isaiah prophesied when Israel was split up in the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. He prophesied during the reigns of King Uzziah, King Jotham, his father, King Ahaz, or sorry, Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And as you read through this book, you will notice a general trend or a melody, if you will, that kind of strings itself along the pages of Isaiah's prophecy. The ESV Study Bible defines this theme as God himself who does all things for his glory. And I think that's a pretty fitting statement. As you read through Isaiah, everything that happens in the entire book is centered around God, centered around him working for the glory of his name. The name Isaiah literally means God is salvation. The people of God have constantly sinned against him. They have worshipped other gods. They have turned away from him. And yet there is this running theme of God's faithfulness to his people. A running theme of the glorious redemption that he has planned for his people. A running theme of salvation for sinners and a running theme that God himself is in fact that salvation. God alone is salvation, and he works for the glory of his name. Keep that in mind as we study this passage together this morning. Now, while most of the book of Isaiah is prophetic writing, some of it consists of narrative. Chapters 36 through 39 specifically focus around the life of King Hezekiah. Now, who is King Hezekiah? Well, first, he is a man passionate for the glory of God. 
2 Kings 18.2 says, He did what is right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father, David, had done. And Hezekiah's righteousness is on full display during the Syrian invasion of chapters 36 and 37. I don't have time to go into detail about it now, but essentially, Syria invades Judah, Sennacherib, the Syrian king, blasphemes against God, and Hezekiah appeals to God's own name and to his own glory to deliver his people. And the Lord miraculously saves his people by sending the angel of the Lord to kill 185,000 Syrian men. Again, there's that theme. God is salvation, and he works for the glory of his name. So who is Hezekiah? He's a man passionate for the glory of God. Second, he is of the line of David. He is in the Davidic line. So why does it matter? Why does it matter who Hezekiah's great, 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 great grandfather was? Well, as we read through the Old Testament, you'll see that God relates to and works redemption for his people through a series of promises or covenants. And these covenants or these promises build upon each other until they're encapsulated in the New Covenant, in the New Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, we see covenants with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, with Moses, and eventually with King David. Now, 2 Samuel 7 is where we will see the covenant with David ratified. During this chapter, God makes several promises to David. He says, I will make you into a great name. I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. I will be to you a father, and you will be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from you. Now, these promises are for the physical kings of Judah, but they're also pointing towards an ultimate king of Judah, an ultimate king whose throne will truly never pass away, a savior who will establish his kingdom and his rule forever. So Hezekiah is a continuation of this Davidic promise. He is a continuation of God's promise that the throne will not depart from David. So, who is Hezekiah? He's a man passionate for the glory of God. He is of the Davidic line. And third, he is last in line. At this point, Hezekiah did not have a male heir to the throne. His son Manasseh would eventually be the king of Judah, and he would take over the throne at the age of 12. And as we see in this text, God gives 15 more years to Hezekiah's life. And so that would mean that there's a three-year gap when this was said and when his son, his heir, would be born. So it appears that the heir to the throne, Manasseh, hasn't been born yet. And hence, there is no heir to the throne. Fourth, he is in the prime of his life. He's around 39 years old, is what most historians think. And so, in Aristotle's classic book on rhetoric, men are said to be in their prime physically around 30 to 35 years old. Now, the shin splints in my leg and my sore hip flexor would disagree with Aristotle, but that's besides the point. Okay? Back then, it was believed that men were in their prime physically around 30 to 35. It was also believed that men were in their prime mentally around 49 years old. And so this would place Hezekiah smack dab in the middle of being in his prime both physically and mentally. 
Fifth, his kingdom is under siege. Verse 6 says, I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. So it appears that Judah is currently still under siege from Syria. So that would place this event prior to the events of 36 and 37, even though it happens in chapter 38. So this would appear to not be a good time for anything to happen to Hezekiah. He is the king of Judah. He is from the line of David. His throne will be established forever. He may not have an heir yet, but that'll come. He is at the peak of his life physically, mentally, and seemingly spiritually. He has the Lord on his side. He is passionate for the Lord's glory, and as a kingdom is oppressed from a massive army. And then with one word, it all goes from bad to worse. So our time together this morning is going to be centered around three major points. Three major points. People are probably like, you haven't started your sermon yet? Okay, first point is the problem. Second point is the promise. And the third point is the protagonist. The problem, the promise, and the protagonist. So point number one, the problem. Look with me at verse one of Isaiah 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Picture this scene. You or a loved one are doing your job. You're going about life. You're serving your church. You're caring for your family. Perhaps you're raising children. And eventually you start to feel a little bit under the weather. And you don't go to a doctor yet because you're sure that will just clear up. But your symptoms only worsen rather than improve. So eventually you go to the doctor, and that doctor tells you the news. You have an autoimmune disease, and it will follow you until the day that you die. You have Alzheimer's, and as you go about your days, you will forget more and more about the person that you are and the ones that you love. You have clinical depression. Your kidneys are failing. You have cancer. Or maybe it's not a health thing. Maybe it's, we're really sorry, but we have to let you go. Your mother and I are getting a divorce. I think that we should see other people. And in the blink of an eye, 
your entire life is turned upside down. Everybody in this room has had a moment like that, has had a conversation like that before in their life. And this is exactly what Hezekiah is going through. Hezekiah is the Davidic king of Judah. He is in the prime of his life. He honors and he obeys God. He does what is right in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom is under siege, and then he starts to feel a little bit sick. He finds a boil on his skin. Eventually, it progresses until he feels like he is at the point of death. And then, at that moment, God's prophet comes to him, and he tells him what he fears to be true. Set your house in order. You shall die. You shall not recover. Now, this is not a doctor telling Hezekiah that his prognosis doesn't look good. This wasn't a guess by a bunch of guys in lab coats. This was not a 50% chance that Hezekiah was going to die. This was not a 70% chance that Hezekiah was going to die. This was the omniscient God of the universe telling Hezekiah that he was going to die. There was no question about it. This sickness was going to kill him. Now, this is bad news for anybody, but picture Hezekiah's situation here. He is the king of Judah. He is in the prime of his life. This is not a man in the twilight of his years. It would appear that his best days would be ahead of him, not behind him. And yet he's on his deathbed. There is not an heir to his throne here. The future king Manasseh hasn't been born yet. Not only that, but his kingdom is under siege. What will happen to his kingdom? What will happen to God's people? The covenant with David promises that the throne will not depart from David. Did God forget his promise? Will there be a forever king on the throne? Will God, in fact, be our salvation? So what does Hezekiah do? Does he mope and complain? No. Does he curse God and die? No. Does he turn to the necromancers of that day? Or to Baal? Or does he reestablish the high places that he tore down? No. Hezekiah turns his face to the wall, perhaps in the direction of the temple, and he cries out to God. He pleads with his father. He's not demanding a reward for his faithfulness here. He is modestly begging God to remember his heart toward him. Please, O Yahweh, remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness. Remember how I have followed you with a whole heart. Remember how I have done what is good in your sight. Please remember me. He doesn't just go inside of himself and try harder here. He comes openly and he comes honestly before God and he pleads his case. He draws near to God. Brothers and sisters, does this describe you this morning? When the waves of this world crash against you, and they surely will, who do you turn to? When you get that bad news, 
What is your response? Do you find a life coach to tell you what to do? Do you run to the latest blogger or self-help book? Do you run to a friend and vent to him or her? Do you call a parent or a mentor? Maybe you run to an addiction. Do you run to pornography? Do you run to eating? Do you run to fast food? Do you run to work? Do you run to exercise? Do you run to sports? Do you run to house projects? What we run to in our lives when things are bad points to what we worship. What we run to in our lives when things are bad points to what we believe will save us. I don't know about you guys, um, but this pandemic opened my eyes to the myriad of idols in my own life. When everything was taken away from me last March, I tried to fill my emptiness with work. And then I worked from home. With exercise. And then the gyms closed. With friends and family. And then I couldn't see anybody. With house projects. And then I finished all my house projects. Brothers and sisters, God is the only one who can satisfy us. God is the only one who can save us. And there's that theme again. God alone can save We fill our lives with the things of this world thinking that they will bring us joy and all they do is leave us wanting more. And notice what Hezekiah's prayer is like in verse 10. In verse 10, he said, I said in the middle of my days, I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I have rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day to night, you bring me to an end. I called myself until morning. Like a lion, he breaks all my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp, I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. Be my pledge of safety. Hezekiah here is not just offering up lip service to God. Hezekiah is not just saying, God, whatever you want is best for me, and I thank you for that. No, Jesus doesn't even have that nonchalant of a prayer when he's pleading with God in Gethsemane. No, Hezekiah is pleading with God. He says, I am consigned to the gates of Sheol. Like a lion, he breaks my bones. From day to night, you bring me to an end. My eyes are weary with looking upward. My eyes are weary with looking upward. I'm sure some of us this morning can relate to that. Hezekiah goes to God and he tells him what is on his mind. Now, he's reverent while he's doing it. He's not demanding anything from God here. But there is emotion in his conversation as he petitions to the holy God 
of the universe. Brothers and sisters, we can do worse than to follow Hezekiah's example and cry out to God in our distress. With a reverent heart, with a humble spirit, with an overarching theme of your will be done, but crying out nonetheless. Because God, in fact, is salvation, and he works for the glory of his name. So point one was the problem. Point two is the promise. The promise. Look with me at verse four of Isaiah 38. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. For you note takers out there, um, this is where the sermon gets a little bit wonky. I've got three sub points underneath this second point. Okay, I promise it's not going to be that long. Okay, but there's three sub points underneath this second point of the promise. So notice first, that God hears our prayers and he sees our tears. God hears our prayers and he sees our tears. So Hezekiah here is pleading out to God. He is moaning before him. He says, I am oppressed. And he asks God to be his pledge of safety. And the first thing that God says is, I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. Before he makes any promises to Hezekiah, he says, I hear you. I see you. As a parent, you need to reject many of the requests of your child. No, you cannot watch Thomas the Tank Engine first thing in the morning. No, you cannot put that in your mouth. No, you may not have mac and cheese for breakfast. Yes, we do have to go to the grocery store. Yes, you do have to wear pants. No, not your sister's pants. The worst rejections are the ones that we know will cause our child temporary pain. Taking them to get a shot at the doctor. Rubbing aloe on a sunburn. Cleaning a particularly messy diaper while they have diaper rash. If you don't know that experience, trust me. Taking out a splinter from a hand. And as you do this, they cry for you to stop. They beg with you. They plead. They shed tears. They accuse. They try to strike a deal. And none of these wails go unheard from a loving parent's ears. Every tear from my son is matched by an equal or greater cry in my own heart, begging myself to stop. They don't know why you're doing it. They just see you as being cruel. But you know it's for their good. Without that shot, they may get tetanus or measles. Without getting that splinter out, they may get an infection. Without changing that diaper, who knows what's going to happen. 
How many of us feel like God does not hear us? How many of us feel like God does not see us? Or worse, he doesn't even care. We pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray some more and still nothing. We cry out to God and nothing. We plead to God. We shed tears before God. Like a swallow or a crane, I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward and nothing. But God tells Hezekiah, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. I hear you. I see you. Brothers and sisters, this morning I call you brothers and sisters because we share a common adoptive father. And brothers and sisters, our Father hears and sees every single prayer that we lift up to him. Our Father sees every tear that we shed. Our Father aches when we ache. And our Father cares deeply for us. You may not be able to see it. Hudson has no idea about the turmoil that's going on inside of me when I hand him over to that nurse to inject that needle in his arm while he screams and cries. God sees our tears and he hears our cries and he has compassion on us in our cries. Please believe that this morning, friends. If you are going through a trial right now, believe that. God cares for you. And if you're not going through a particularly difficult trial, then convince yourself of that this morning. God cares for you. Because the storms will come. Convince yourself today that he cares for you so that you will know that it's true when the clouds begin to form overhead. And notice also that God answers prayer. Right? Hezekiah appeals to God, and God answers his prayer. He adds 15 years to Hezekiah's life. Now, this doesn't mean that God will answer every prayer that we bring before him. Oftentimes, I need to tell Hudson no. I need to stick by my word. He cannot eat mac and cheese for breakfast every single day. But we often forget that God cares cares for us deeper than we can ever realize, and sometimes he answers yes. Notice second, sub-point two, God uses earthly means to answer prayer. God uses earthly means to answer prayer. Look at the bottom of Isaiah 38, verse 21, and it says, Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil, that he may recover. So it appears here that the Lord used this solution of figs placed on his boil to heal Hezekiah. God used earthly medicinal means to heal Hezekiah. Matthew Henry's put it like this. He said, we do not trust God 
but tempt him. If when we pray to him for help, we do not second our prayers with our endeavors. We must not put physicians in the place of God, but make use of them in subordination to God and to his providence. You may have heard the parable of the two farmers. One farmer prays that God will raise his crops for him, and then he does nothing. He sits on his hands, he wastes time. While the other farmer prays that God would grow his harvest, and then he gets to work. He tills his soil, he fertilizes his crops, he waters them daily. Now, which of these two farmers had the greater faith? Well, it was the one who worked in expectation that God would answer his prayer. The primary way that God answers prayer is through earthly means. Now, there are exceptions, but the primary way that God answers prayer is through earthly means. It is no sin to go to the doctor. It does not show a distrust in God to take prescribed medication. It does not show a distrust in God to pray for financial provision and then work your tail off to get that new job. It does not show a distrust in God to use earthly means to help you through a difficult circumstance. I know that this may sound contradictory. I kind of knocked earthly things in my last point. But don't, don't mishear me here. Idols are still wrong. It's still evil to try to find your salvation in earthly things. But God gives us good gifts in this world to help us. Exercise is a great way to de-stress. Preparing and enjoying a good meal can help get your mind off of work. Talking with a friend about a trial that you're going through is a great way to be reminded of truth and unload what's on your mind. God uses earthly means to answer our prayers and encourage our faith. The key is to enjoy his good gifts while still remembering and giving thanks to the giver of those good gifts and not idolizing that gift for what it is in and of itself. Now, to be clear here, this is not giving you a license to sin. Pornography or overeating or gossiping are never acceptable ways to deal with stress in our lives. In fact, I think that this point encourages us to kill sin in our lives. Brother struggling with gluttony this morning. Do you run to dessert or alcohol or sodas for comfort instead of the living God? Are you praying about it? You are? Good. But what are you doing about it? What practical steps are you doing to kill that sin in your life? Sister struggling with gossip or envy or greed. Are you praying about it? You are? Good. But what measures are you putting up for yourself to avoid talking about others behind their back? Jesus calls us to cut off our hand and gouge out our eye if it causes us to sin. Now, obviously, that's hyperbole. Okay, but don't miss his point in saying that. What are you doing practically to kill the sin in your own life? What drastic measures are you taking to kill sin that you struggle with? We must not put earthly means in the place of God, but make use of them in subordination to God and his providence. 
Notice third, Hezekiah recognizes God's answer to prayer. Hezekiah recognizes God's answer to prayer. Look with me at verse 19. The living, the living, he thanks you as I do this day. The Father makes known to the children your faithfulness. The Lord will save me, and we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives at the house of the Lord. How often does God answer prayer in our lives? And we don't even notice it. A couple of weeks ago, Hudson had a fever of 103.3 degrees. It was a random fluke, no other symptoms. He was exhausted and he looked miserable. And we prayed that God would heal him swiftly. And literally the next morning, it was gone. That was an answer to prayer. Every time we go down to North Carolina to see Catherine's family, we pray for safety on our trip. And to this day, we have never had a car accident traveling to and from North Carolina. That is an answer to prayer. We have prayed fervently as a congregation that God would grow our church and bring people to salvation. And we have seen our congregation grow from 40-something to over 100-something in a matter of five years. That is an answer to prayer. Or how about a prayer that God didn't answer, but turned out to be for our good? Five years ago, I prayed to get a different job at a different school, only to be declined by God and to get the job that I have now, teaching at the school that I went to as a kid. It was a good thing that God didn't answer my prayer. How many prayers do we lift up that God answers, and yet we do not even notice? We must be quick to praise God for his mercy. And notice that Hezekiah does not keep his praise of God to himself. Verse 19, the father makes known to the children your faithfulness. Verse 20, we will play my music on stringed instruments all the days of our lives. We ought to tell other people about the faithfulness that God has shown to us. Tell your children about what God has done. Tell your friends about what God has done. Tell your church about what God has done. Tell your life group about what God has done. Even those little things in your life. And as we praise God to other people, you will encourage both yourself and them to look out for the many mercies and answers to prayer that God shows us on a daily basis. I encourage you to keep a prayer journal. Write down things that you pray for each day and look back at it once a month and see what God has done. Keep a family prayer journal. Every night at dinner time, take a prayer request from each person and write it down and then look back every month and see how God has answered your prayers. May we have eyes that are ever looking for the Lord's answers to the prayers that we bring before him because he does answer prayer. So point number one was the problem. Point number two was the promise. And point number three is the protagonist. Point number three is the protagonist. So let's recap here. Our seeming protagonist, Hezekiah, seems like he's going to die. He does not have an heir to his throne. His nation has not been delivered from Syria yet. He is in the prime of his life, both mentally and physically. 
and he gets a mortal boil. And then he's told by the omniscient God that he is going to die. So Hezekiah pleads with God to be spared. He says, please, O Lord, remember me how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And what does God say in response? Well, look with me at verse 5. Look with me at verse 5. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, because you have been faithful and done what is good, I will spare you. No, it doesn't say that. Does it say, thus says the Lord, because you have prayed to me and asked me, I will spare you. No. Does it say, because you read through the Bible in a year, and you attended verse by verse every Wednesday, and you brought your famous bacon-wrapped dates to the church luncheon, I will spare you? No. Well, what does it say? It says, go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. The God of David. The God who promised David that he would make him into a great name. That he would establish his kingdom. That he would be a father to him. That he would discipline him as a son. That his steadfast love would not depart from him. That he would establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the God who is answering Hezekiah's prayer. Hezekiah appeals to God because of his own faithfulness. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really know what to make of Hezekiah's prayer. I think that it's a good thing that he went to God. I think that that it's a good thing that he went to God instead of going to other things, like many of the other kings of Israel did. But the prayer seems a little bit proud. I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. And frankly, I don't know if Isaiah even cares about that. Isaiah gives no commentary whatsoever on the nature of Hezekiah's prayer. He doesn't say if it's good or bad. But what is clear is that Hezekiah seems to be appealing to his own faithfulness, and God one-ups him. You say because you have been faithful. No, 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 no. It's because I have been faithful. I am the God of David. The throne will never leave your house. I will surely establish your kingdom. I will be a father to you, not because of what you did, but because of what I did. And God then adds 15 years to the life of Hezekiah, and it feels like there's this rising excitement. Hezekiah is going to live. The line will continue. Israel will be delivered from the hands of the Syrians, just like they were delivered from Egypt. Could this man be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant? Could this man be the one ultimately sent to reign on David's throne? And then literally in the next chapter, that idea is thrown out the window. In chapter 39, I can talk about it in detail here, but in Hezekiah's pride and in his arrogance, he shows off all his wealth and his entire kingdom to a couple officers from Babylon. And then after he does this, Isaiah prophesies about the future exile of Israel to Babylon. Hezekiah would eventually die, but his sin of pride and arrogance 
would eventually lead to one of the most catastrophic events or play a part in leading to one of the most catastrophic events in Israel's history. Hezekiah was not the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Just like Hezekiah, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have walked before God in faithfulness and with a whole heart. None of us have done what is right in God's eyes, and our sin has earned us the eternal wrath of God. Hezekiah was not the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. But there will be another son of David. The very first verse of the New Testament, Matthew 1.1, says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Unlike Hezekiah, there is one who will be perfectly faithful. Unlike Hezekiah, there is one who will follow God with all his heart. There is one who will have every right to plead to God for life and yet pray your will be done in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is one who will not just reign for 15 more years, but will reign for 15 million more years and then some. There is one who will not just intercede to God for himself or for his country, but for all of his sheep. There is one who will deliver his people, not just from Egypt or from Syria or from Babylon, but from sin and death itself. There is one whose throne will truly never be shaken. God himself sent his son, Jesus, into the world, and he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he took our sin from us, and he went to a cross bearing the full wrath of God, bearing the pains of hell. And whoever would believe in him is then given his perfect life. And this Jesus rose from the dead, triumphing over sin and over death, and now he is interceding on our behalf before his Father. And so we do not just pray to God by ourselves, but we have a perfect sinless advocate who is praying before his father on our behalf as well. And you may say, how could God ever love a sinner such as I? You don't know the people I've hurt. You don't know the videos I've seen. You don't know the things I've said, the thoughts I've entertained, the doubts I've had, the company I've kept, the evils I've committed. Brothers, sisters, friends. It's not about you. It's not about you. Hezekiah appeals to his own faithfulness in Isaiah 38, and God says, no, you got it wrong. I have heard your prayers. I have seen your tears. I will answer your request, but it's not because of what you've done. It's not about how good you are. It's not about what you've done for me. You are not saving yourself here. It's about what I have done. I am the God of David. I have promised to establish your throne forever. I have promised to make you into a great name. I am the one who is faithful. I will surely see my promise through to the end. 
God alone is salvation, and he works for the glory of his name. It's because of me, because I am good, because I have made a covenant with my people, because I have promised to give them my own righteousness. And today, God sent his son to die for our sins, and he reconciles us back to himself. God alone is salvation, and he works for the glory of his name. It's not about you. Praise God. Praise God. Be encouraged by that this morning, brothers and sisters. God promises that any sinner who turns away from his sin and runs to Jesus and trusts alone in Jesus Christ for their salvation will be saved, no matter what you've done in your past. God has promised it, and God is faithful to uphold his promises. Praise God. The story of the gospel is not about a people who find religion and then start doing good things. The very story of the gospel is that we have all done evil. Even the greatest kings in Israel's history did horrible evils. But it's not about them. It's about a man who loves you so much that he died on a cross for you, that he took the wrath of God for you, that he took the pains of hell, that he withstood his own precious father turning his face away, all for a people who hated him. And with that in mind, we can have confidence that we can go to him in prayer and that he hears our prayers, and he sees our tears, that he answers prayer, and that he is faithful even when we can't see it. When a close friend or a family member is struggling and battling through a trial, when they lose their job, when they get sick, when they're on their deathbed, our hearts ache for them. How much more does God love us than we love our friends and family? How much more does God's heart ache for us? People of God, God sees your tears, and he hears your prayers, and he is faithful. God alone is salvation, and he works for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Your Father, we thank you that you hear every single cry that we bring up to you. We thank you that there is not one prayer that we say that goes in one ear and out the other. And Lord, we thank you that you are omniscient. We thank you that you are all good. We thank you that you are faithful to your promises. And we thank you that you are good and faithful even when we can't see it. I pray that we would be more ready to see the answers to prayer that you show to us in our lives. I pray that we would be quick to praise you, that we would be quick to trust you, even when things don't seem like they should be going as they should. Father, we thank you that you are good. We thank you for your son. We lift these things in his name. Amen.